It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It's David. It's the podcast. We're in a new phase. We're in the so-called lockdown, although I'd kind of prefer to call it a lock-in. I think it sounds much nicer. A lockdown kind of gives you this feeling of, you know, big, aggressive Americans in black SWAT uniforms shouting at people on the street, whereas a lock-in, as you know, I mean, who doesn't like a lock-in? It's cosy, there's slow pints... We're chilling out. We're getting to know the family again. We're taking it handy. So the way the Brits talk about the great British bake-off, we are now in the great Irish lock-in. But I'm joined from the ghetto that is Stillorgan by your man, the head himself. Johnny Boy, what's the crack? Oh, it's mighty here. I love an L lock-in, but, you know, the bar is closed. In I know, my house. but you have to have your own bar. This is the thing. You have your own <laughs> bar. Well, I did like. I did like that. Still, uh, John, the of the essential services in Ireland, the off license is still an essential service. It's still open. Well, I've got a few within two kilometres of me, so that's going to be my exercise. I can, I, I can, <laughs> I can see you. I can see you exactly. Just strolling manfully to the office. Anyway, exactly. How's the crack in your house? All good. It's all good, you know, it's uh, it's good for now. It's the missus's birthday today, so we're all scrambling around. I was up late last night making cards. <laughs> well, you were not, were you? <laughs> old school, old school. And tell me, you told me your brother in London. Yeah, Tony and his wife, Christine, both have come down with COVID. And how are they? Uh, they're okay. Uh, Tony, a bit of a hypochondriac, but uh, he, uh, I know, at the, that's very unfair. Uh, no, he was pretty bad during the week. I think he's okay. Like, he literally couldn't get out of bed. He hasn't moved from the bed for over a week. You know, and then there's two others in the house as well. So within a couple of weeks, they'll all have it. So, like, it's worrying times. But I don't know. I, I hope it's fine. I'm sure it will be fine. No, it should but, be, uh, it sure will be. My, my, my great memory of John's brother, Tony, was... Uh, as a suburban Marxist in the late 1970s. Indeed he was. <laughs> where he had, uh, John's house was spray painted with all these communist uh, murals. Like whoa, 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 hang on a second. Not the house was spray the garage, painted. The garage, the garage. It was the garage was spray the painted. The with garage. Hasta la revolución and all that sort yeah. of great stuff. Listen, man, there's nothing better than a PLO scarf wearing Irish Marxist in the late 1970s <laughs> to infuse... <laughs> Your bro- younger brother and your younger brother's mates with all classes of notions about the future. Now he's great. Well, listen, yeah. it was when you're talking to him, give him my regards. And uh, I will. I hope he, I hope he, How's I hope your mum? My my mother, <laughs> my mother. The other day, she's great. She's in total isolation. And I texted her the other day, and she says, "I'm loving it." You know, she says, "I love the solitude." She says, "I'm living like a monk. It's great." But you <laughs> love this. The other day, she says to me, "I was on some show, and I, I tweeted it out." And she says, she rang me and says, I heard you were on that show. And I said, how did you hear? She says, I heard you on Tinder. And I said, what? She's on that Tinder thing you're on. I said, Mom, it's Twitter. So uh, she's 84 and she's going on Tinder. But she's on Tinder, though. Yeah, that's all she's good. She's just getting confused. Uh, you know, I'm telling <laughs> what you. platform am I on now? Exactly. Anyway, let's kick off. Let's kick off. Yeah, okay, right. So tell us then, what's going on in Europe? What's going on in the ECB? And actually, what's going on here? You know, it seems like the government might actually be listening to you, Mac. 
<laughs> well, no, look, I think, John, would, in fairness, I would give hands down to the civil servants this week in the Department of Finance. Remember last week and the week before, we were talking about this Danish idea that you have yeah, to yeah, yeah. try in as much as possible as keep the link between the employer and the employee because that's the most crucial link in the chain. The idea being that we need to try and keep people who might be let go, we might need to keep them on. And the idea is the government should subsidise that wage. The Danish led the way in this uh, about two weeks ago. And in fairness to the Irish state, they have responded. They started working on this last weekend. And by the end of this week just gone, i.e. last Friday, uh, that scheme is in. So the scheme is that employers can get 70% of the wage of their employees that they were going to let go they can get that paid by the state. Now, obviously, there's lots of creases to iron out. Obviously, there's lots of creases. There's lots of bits and pieces that will actually yeah. need to come out in the wash. But in principle, the scheme is there. And in fairness to the Department of Finance, they turned this around very, very quickly. And, I, and I'm Yeah, they did. And, and the one thing that obviously that affects both yourself and myself is the self-employed element to this. Well, exactly. And the, the, again, they've extended to the, the self-employed. What I've always said is the self-employed, John, are 320,000 people in Ireland. It's 15% yeah. of the entire workforce. Myself, yourself, and lots of our mates are, 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 have passed being, we're kind of unemployable now. You know, nobody would give us a gig anyway. <laughs> right? right. So yeah. you got to work for yourself. But there's always been a sense the self-employed have always been overlooked and never really uh, listened to. The reason is very simple. If you're self-employed, you're not big enough to be represented by IBEC, which is basically the large firms, right? So all the big yeah. firms, not just the multinationals, but your big, uh, your big local firms. So you're not big enough to be represented by IBEC and you're not an employee, so you're not represented by ICTU, the trade union uh, organisation, or the mm. various trade union organisations. So therefore, at the top table, you're very much without a voice, and this has always come into my, remember my insiders and outsiders idea over the years, yeah. that yeah. basically the insiders are kind of members of IBEC on the one hand, kind of wealthy insiders, because they have a voice, and to a degree members of the trade union movement, because at least they have a voice on the left-wing side, and they have a mechanism to influence policy, whereas the, the self-employed are really kind of the outsiders in many ways, not least because we don't have this voice. But the good thing is that uh, the government have recognised the fact that 15% of the workforce are neither big employers nor employees. Yeah. And they're, they're listening. And, 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 and the, the point is, though, John, they've done an incredibly decent job and an incredibly difficult situation, and they've done that quickly. On yeah. the other Are you surprised at that? I am surprised at it because usually what happens in the civil service is the Department of Finance is a very conservative, very slow-moving... Yeah. Uh, I can imagine. Organization. And the other hand is, if you're a civil servant, John, your wages aren't affected. So the financial urgency of the crisis is quite remote for you because you don't lose your job. You don't lose your wage. You're going to get paid every month. And it's obvious that that thinking is deep within the civil servant's mentality because that's their lived experience. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I am very impressed with the way they've turned it around. So fair play to them. What I'm worry though about is the total absence of the voice of the central bank in Ireland. Now, economic, really? Yeah, well, economic policy is two things. There's one is fiscal policy, which is basically taxes and government spending. And the other side is monetary policy, which is who controls the money and the banking system and the regulation of that, right? Mm. And if you imagine that in a crisis, the policymaker has two arms. One is fiscal policy, one arm, and the other one is monetary policy. What has happened now is we are fighting this battle with fiscal policy alone and monetary policy almost we're fighting like we've got one arm tied behind our back. And the reason is the central bank has been incredibly weak in terms of messaging, in terms of acting on what the ECB is doing because the ECB has actually opened up uh, the spigots and our central bank is not aggressively and actively using what the ECB has done to con to encourage banks and to try and come back to the, our idea of hel helicopter money. So yeah. the ECB, again, Lagarde initially said this, nothing to see here. Remember that about two weeks ago. Yeah. Now, last week, she's saying, we're right behind you. Then this week, John, 
not only did the ECB say we're right behind you, but normally the ECB extend money to banks, and I'll explain all this in a minute, with sort of terms and conditions apply, you know, the usual things. Yeah. Last Thursday night, they actually issued a new directive, which is no terms and no conditions apply, so you can do whatever you want. And amazingly, John, they also instructed all banks not to pay any dividends to shareholders. So they basically well, that's said... that's a bloody good thing. Oh, that's, it's amazing. So ECB said... Yeah. All the capital you have on your balance sheet, none of it's to go to shareholders. It's all going to go to the fight to try and get money into people's pockets. So contrast this, for example, with the airlines in the United States. An airline like United, United, biggest airline in the United States, gave 95% of its cash flow to its shareholders in, in in dividends, right? So basically what it did is it took all the profits... Wait, when did they do that? Over the last couple of years. So it took all right, the okay, profits, yeah. took all the profits made, and rather than build up a capital buffer for a crisis, they gave yeah. it to their mates, and largely their mates are rich people. So you got a direct transfer from the consumers of United to the shareholders. Absolutely abominable, appalling behaviour, which is why all the American... Airlines are bust now because they've no money. Yeah. Contrast that ironically with Ryanair, which has a massive cash pile. Because O'Leary is a prudent manager and is always worried about what's going around the corner. So to come back to the ECB, the ECB said, banks, you cannot, you cannot give money back to your shareholders. Now, the interesting thing is what the ECB did last Thursday could lead to a dramatic reduction in people's mortgages here in Ireland. This is the really interesting thing. Wow, and I okay. believe that Pascal Donoghue next week should do and maybe will do instruct the banks because he's the largest shareholder, remember, in, in banks, yeah, like, in ba- in banks yeah. like AIB still, to actually do the following. So the ECB said, and this is really important to people because at the moment, policy on uh, incomes, when the Irish state said it was going to subsidise people's incomes. What it's trying to do is, remember we came back last, last week, John, the idea was we've got to put the economy into hibernation and in that hibernation we've got to assuage as many anxieties as possible in order for people to actually go in to the next few months worried about their health but not worried about their wealth. That's the absolute key. So the income side of this, Pascal Donoghue has come up with, However, the problem, as you know, John, as everybody listening knows, even if your income is maintained, if your outgoings are still high, then your income gets worn down over a while, particularly if you're not earning. So the other side of the thing is to let's, let's, let's see what people's outgoings are and try and freeze those. Can it be done? And yeah. this is where the central bank should be coming in. So one of people's main outgoings in Ireland is their mortgage, right? Particularly for our generation sure. and people, let's say, up to the age of maybe 35, 40, and beyond. Now, mm. there are 75 billion. 75 billion is the total value of the mortgage book in Ireland, right? That's how many mortgages are out there. The ECB has said, we will now give money to the banks at minus 0.75%. So we will not charge you. We'll actually give you money, not even for free, more than for free. Now, that <laughs> allows a bank to borrow from the ECB at, let's say, minus 0.75%, and lend yeah. out to us at 1% and still make a profit, okay? 1.75%. So bear with that, right? Yeah. However, Irish mortgages, on average, the central bank has given us the figures, are the average mortgage in Ireland, the average mortgage payer pays 3%, okay? So it is possible tomorrow for a bank to come in, borrow from, let's say AIB, borrow from the ECB at 0.75, offer all mortgages at 1%, say to everyone, you can swap your old mortgage into this new mortgage at 1%. Now, what that would mean, John, is that for the average person, it would be a 2% saving in their mortgage payments every year, right? Yeah. What that would mean for the economy is an injection of $1.5 billion back into people's pockets. And for the average mortgage holder with a mortgage rate of 300 grand, okay, it would be yeah. a 220 to 250 euro saving per month to the right. average person, right? And yeah, this that's can crazy. All be, this is what the ECB has said. It says, come and do it, right? Now, at the moment, Irish people pay 3% for money. Europeans pay about 1.3. 
So we're already twice as much. So we're already paying twice. Right. And for new mortgages, we're paying even more than that. So here you have a situation where the ECB has said to the central banks, do what you want. We will finance everything. The bank, central bank should now be instructing our banks to offer these new low interest rate mortgages, which are covered by the ECB, in order to get income into people's pockets, in order to have 200 or 250 extra euros per month. But what's the central bank doing? Nothing. I've heard absolutely nothing. Can I ask you then, this is obviously the first real test for your man, the new governor of McLoof. But I mean, you know, he's not even in there a wet week. So yeah. is he kind of scrambling around? This is a hell of a test for anybody. Do you remember, so, the, do you remember the abdication of uh, Prince Edward, what's that his name, in England in the 1930s, who went to Offerture 1, Mrs. Wallace. Simpson, Mrs. Yeah, Simpson. Mrs. yeah. Mrs. Simpson, yeah, Wallace yeah. Simpson, right? Well, this is, yeah. he's, he's the Prince Edward of central banking. He has abdicated, right? He's gone. We don't know where he is, right? The point is he needs to come and play a role, right? Because the yeah. central bank is, with the Department of Finance, the most crucial economic institution in the country. The European Central Bank has said, look, lads, we're in this together. Do your thing. We will print as much money as possible. Yeah. We will... Basically, John, remember we talked about helicopter money? They're, going yeah. that, they're, they're on their way there, right? Now, what that will mean, we will get there at some stage, but it will demand breaking all sorts of central bank taboos and, and kind of intellectual taboos. But that, all they are is taboos, right? We will break that, but the ECB has gone that way because they realise the severity of the crisis. Right. Our guys are sitting on their hands doing nothing and overburdening Pascal Donoghue with all the decisions when, in fact, the central bank should be putting their hand up and saying, here, we're going to help. Do we know that they're not doing that, though? I mean, are they... Is, is all this going on in the background? No, going on in the background is a bullshitter's way to say doing nothing, right? <laughs> okay, right. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, and then you've got to ask, well, what is the central bank doing? You know, people are worried about the, this, this helicopter money. Why is it doing this? I think what has happened is the ECB have said, okay, this crisis is temporary. It will pass. Mm. They haven't said this, but the most important thing, John, is to make sure that no matter how much money we spend now to try and send the economy into hibernation and assuage people's fears about their future income and wealth, right, it is inconceivable and it would be unforgivable for countries like Ireland and the rest of the European countries to emerge out of this pandemic and have to put in place an austerity budget in the next couple of years to pay back the money. Right? That is yeah. unforgivable. It would be yeah. unforgivable if this pandemic caused the debt-GDP ratio of countries to rise dramatically and therefore militate against spending on health and infrastructure and schools and all that stuff in the future, sure. roads and housing, okay? Yeah. So the ECB kind of understands this. And as much as they're intellectually avoid insane free money. What they're basically saying is, this is free money. And we have to agitate completely that this end game can never be an austerity budget in two or three years' time. Or, for example, if interest rates were to rise, which they will do in five or six years' time, whatever they do, right, that the cost of this medical intervention is going to be put on people as if we did something wrong. Because this type of debt, and what really annoys me about economics over the years, John, is that there's always a morality idea that in some way debt is bad and credit is good and yeah. debtors need to be punished, right? And this might re-emerge, and this is what the ECB are trying to avoid because ultimately this debt is the most moral economic policy we've ever undertaken because it's driven by borrowing money to avoid losing people to a pandemic. And that's what economics is all about. And I think now people say, yeah, but if they keep printing money, won't it lead to hyperinflation and won't this change and people's trust in the currency and trust in... The idea is the reason we can do this now in Europe is this latitude to act is the reward, so to speak, for good central bank policy over the last 50 years. So the reason, and I speak as a former central bank economist, when we went in there, we were schooled to this idea always be afraid of inflation, always be cautious. It's this idea that 
An American central banker once said that the job of the central bank is to take away the punch bowl when the party's getting going. So to take <laughs> away the booze when everyone's getting pissed, right? That's the job of the central bank. Now, if you yeah. do that for years and years and years, you build up credibility in the eyes of everybody that you're a serious institution. And the only reason you have credibility is to be able to act and unleash what I would call the awesome firepower of central banking, which is the power to print money. The power to print money is the most outrageous economic power you can have. And if the central bank behaves very well over years, now is the time to actually use that awesome power to print money to get us over this hump. And our central bank, of course, should be actively arguing this and actively saying, not so much how do we get the money to the banks, but how do the banks get the money into our pockets? And obviously the first way is massive reduction in mortgage rates. And the bank that actually reduces mortgage rates to 1% in this crisis will get a huge amount of business as we all swap our mortgages into it. Sure. And I think the second thing, that bank, from a branding perspective, would get a huge, huge positive branding kick if they were to be seen as the pioneer bank that helps the people. But my fear is that our central bank is sitting on its hands and, and doing nothing. Okay, okay, like... I'm not an economist, as you well know, Max. Thanks, thanks but... to Jesus. That'll make, make two gobshites here. But tell us this. I mean, who's going to actually pay for this? Somebody, at the end of the day, has to pay for it. Isn't that right? Okay. Or am I okay. missing the point? Well, the extraordinary alchemy. This is the one thing that central banks don't tell you. It's the great secret of central banking and monetary economics is that the central bank just prints the shit. It just prints the money. There is no obligation to pay for it. What has happened, remember I told you before, is we've been, economists have been terrorised by the tyranny of bad accounting. Accountants love the idea of a balance sheet, right? Bloody accountants. On one side of the balance sheet, it's this double, yeah, exactly, bloody accountants, (laughs) you know? It's this idea of the double entry balance sheet, right? This was the great innovation that the Dutch actually came up with in the 16th century, the double entry banking system. It came from the Florentines originally, but the Dutch really mastered it. Right. This idea that you have every credit on a balance sheet has to have a corresponding debit. So every asset has to have a liability. It has to all balance at the end of the day, right? Yeah. That's accountancy, which as you and I know is a pretty rudimentary and not particularly interesting subject. I remember doing it in, in university first year. I said, man, this is... I remember thinking, yeah. I remember walking around Trinity and said, I didn't come here to do accountancy. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm looking at Oliver Goldsmith, I'm looking at Beckett, and I'm looking at, yeah. you know, Oscar Wilde, and I'm like, man, I didn't come here to do balance sheets, I came here to do... Anyway, so I started to do economics. But the great thing about economics, and this is come back to this, there is no balance sheet in a central bank. It's not like a commercial bank or like a business, right? And this is the great myth, this is the great secret, this is the great alchemy, and this is what I call mm. the awesome power of the central bank. The central bank simply prints money. And it has as its ultimate target the rate of inflation, right? So there is a link, obviously, between the amount of money you print and the rate of inflation. If you keep printing and printing and printing and printing, the rate of inflation will go up. And the reason, the elemental reason of that is that as you print more money, its value goes down, the value of money. And therefore, what inflation is really, inflation is nothing more than the world giving the two fingers to money saying your value's gone down, I don't support you anymore, and the price of everything else goes up against money. That's why you right. have inflation. Okay. Right, so at some stage... So that's going to happen here now? That could happen if... Now, this is the interesting thing. If we were in normal times and we started to print money, like yeah. be Jesus, right? Obviously, very quickly, people would realise there's a thing called the output gap in economics, if we really want to get into it. And that is the difference between potential, the potential growth rate of the economy and the actual growth rate, right? And the potential growth rate of the economy is a function of productivity, it's a function of the labour force, all these things, right? Now, the output gap is the bit, the difference between where the economy is running now and where it could potentially run at full steam, right? When the output gap is huge, you can print as much money as you like. The pandemic, the corona pandemic, drops the economy well below its potential growth rate, okay? Because we're all not shopping, we're all stopping, Okay, right. right. So therefore, the output gap is huge. 
therefore the ability to print money is enormous without generating inflation, right? That's where we are right now. Now, the problem is that accountants can't get their head around this, right? That they're actually, you actually can print the stuff, right? And you can print the right. stuff for a long, long time. Now, then you come back to the idea of who pays for it. The, ge- yeah. the genius is nobody has to pay for it. Nobody what do you mean? has to pay for it because the central bank can just mop that money back up out of the system in six months or 12 months or, or, or 18 months, right? And nothing has happened. So basically at the moment, because of the tyranny of accounting, right, what basically happens is if the government goes to the central bank and says, I want 100 million quid, the central bank says, oh, just give me a piece of paper with an IOU, call a bond, right? And you give me this right. thing. So you pretend that you're actually going to pay me back and I'll pretend I have an asset on my balance sheet and then it kind of balances and the accountants are happy, right? Okay. But it's all, it's all, it's all it, a myth. It, this is voodoo stuff. It, it is all voodoo. It is all voodoo, right? Now, of course, at certain stages, governments can't keep printing. So take, for example, a government like Zimbabwe. Right? Yeah. They just printed and printed and printed and printed and they debased their currency. So eventually, do you know what happened in Zimbabwe? The litre bottle of Coca-Cola became the currency. Isn't that amazing? At the height of the hyperinflation, yeah. people didn't understand how much is this currency worth? There's loads of it. But they understood a litre bottle of Coke is like worth a half day's or a, an hour's work. And the litre right. bo- bottle of Coke became the standard. Typically, for example, in hyperinflation, like in Germany in the 1923, cigarettes become the standard packet of fags becomes the currency, right? Right. In Argentina, for example. So countries like Germany in the 1920s, Argentina over the years, Zimbabwe, they have destroyed the credibility of the central bank. So people don't trust them. So consequently, you can't do this particular piece of voodoo magic that I'm talking about. But the ECB is totally different. So on the one hand, the central bank can what's called monetize this debt. It can actually do it and simply give money to the government and the people, which is helicopter money that we spoke about a couple of weeks ago. Or you can do what the British did in the First World War. Do you know the Brits only paid the last debt of the First World War last year? The Brits, what? What that's amazing. Mean? So when Britain entered the First World War in 1914, and every yeah. 1914, 15, 16, 17, 18, they issued a 100-year bond. Right. That everyone understood, if you lent money to the British government and you didn't live over 100 years, which nobody really does, uh, you would not get paid. So it was a big sort of myth, right? <laughs> right, okay. It was called a consul, and the Brits only paid them off last year, right? So think about this. So you can do whatever the hell you like in a crisis, financially. So the ECB could issue a 100-year bond at a mm-hmm. zero interest rate coupon. So we're not paying anybody any That is, in effect, free money. It would satisfy the accountants because the accountants would have their little asset on their balance sheet, little piece of paper yeah. in IOU, it would satisfy what I call some of the ortho-economists who are German economists who are shit-scared of monetizing debt. And we'll come on to that in a second because there's a big row brewing in Europe between Germany and Italy and France at the moment, right? It would satisfy everything. But what it actually is, it's magic. It's the magic of central banking. And this is the great alchemy of central banking. This is what has, this idea of free money is what has had, you know, crazies trying to get you know, gold out of stones and, and, and also for years and years and years and years, right? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. It's the history of money. This is where it all starts and where it all ends. So, so I, 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 I get the point that in the Eurozone, we're all devaluing, printing money we're printing and money. devaluing that. Yeah. Yeah. But compared to the dollar or, well, the, the, or sterling or... The interesting thing If they're is, not printing as much money... Our, not... our currency will devalue against theirs. Yeah. yeah. And that's, Am I right in thinking that? Absolutely. And that's, the exge- that's where, that's where the, you see this mechanism play out in markets. Yeah. But interestingly, everybody's printing money at the same time now, right? Right. So, so if everyone prints money at the same level, as yeah. it were, well, then everything more or less stays the same. Except just things, moving except things the bar. That, yeah, except things that aren't printed, like gold, will go up in value, right? Right. Against the dollar or against the euro. So real... Bitcoin? Well, bit, the interesting thing is Bitcoin isn't going up in value because it's... Uh, well, we're going to come on to that again. Okay, okay. Because Bitcoin isn't really a thing yet in people's heads. Whereas for many thousands of years, gold has constituted value for a lot of people. Sure. Now, I wouldn't be a gold bug at all because I think there's lots of problems. With it. In fact, uh, J.M. Keynes, the, one of the greatest economics thinkers, just called it that accursed metal, Right. It's kind of useless. But let's come back. So the central bank, the ECB, can finance this all for nothing. The reason this is important is because we need the money now 
And in the future, you don't want austerity budgets to be imposed to pay for the debts incurred today because those debts were incurred to do the right thing, which is to save our bloody neighbours and our own lives. And nor do you want debt GDP ratios to go through the roof, which would argue against governments being able to build schools and hospitals and roads in the future. So that's why I believe we should monetize everything now and use the awesome power of money for this temporary arrangement and yeah. basically say to things, we're just doing this now because we've got a pandemic. We don't tend to have a pandemic all the time, but we do this now. That's the key. And that's where I think the ECB are going. So can you just explain to me the significance of or how negative interest rates work? Okay, so negative interest rates are very odd for people to understand because of the nature of the banking system, the nature of interest. If you think of interest, right? Interest is this idea that your money has value, like your deposits have value. So you put a, a, a thousand quid into the bank, the bank gives you, let's say, typically... 3% 3% interest, okay? Yeah. So you get 30 quid a year from the bank in interest, okay? And with that money, right, your hundred, your 1,000 euros, the bank lends that on to me at 5%. So I pay 5%. So the bank makes 2% in the middle. That's the bank's profit. That's the banking yeah. model, right? And okay. that's in normal times when inflation is, is, is low, but, 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 but still there. So what happens is, so that's positive interest rates. Now, we all understand that because that makes sense to us, right? Because we feel that, okay, my money has some value. I get paid for my deposit. David, you want to take out uh, a loan. Uh, you should pay a little bit more than me. This is back, Remember this idea of the morality of debits and credits and all that sort of stuff, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What happens when an economy goes into a massive downturn, like in 2008, 2009, when the balance sheet of the society is broken? Because on one side of the balance sheet... There were assets, the houses, for example, in Ireland that we bought, which collapsed in value. And the other side, the balance sheet, were the loans we took out to buy those bloody assets, which we still had to pay back, and the interest rates were positive on that, so we were getting squeezed, right? Negative interest rates are what happens when the central bank realises that if you keep interest rates high, as in 1%, 2 3%, nobody yeah. will borrow anything and nobody will lend anything. Why is that? Because the people have the traumatic experience of the crash, and no matter how low the rate of interest is, they don't want to borrow, Yeah, which is actually what happened here for a long time. And the banks have so much... So the people have too much debt and they don't want to borrow. The banks have too much bad debt and they don't want to lend. They want to hold on to cash. So what right, happens okay. is interest rates fall to zero. And when they tip into negative, what that basically means is the central bank is signalling to people that money isn't valuable. That your money that you think is of value is not of value because we need to get the money out productively into the economy and we need to get into circulation. What you're doing by giving me the money in the bank is you're saying, I want to take my money out of circulation and make it useless in a way, right? The central bank is saying, we want to take your money and make it useful and get it going, get people to borrow, right? The only way we can do that is if we penalise you for not spending and we reward somebody for spending, which turns economics on its head because yeah. this morality idea that we should penalise the spenders and we should reward the savers, which is kind of Presbyterian shit, okay? Yes. It's, it's yeah, as yeah. if we've been taken over by the fourth Presbyterian, the fifth Presbyterian church in Portland-owned County Antrim, <laughs> who are my relations, right? And they have this, you know, it's this Weberian bullshit. You know, Max Weber, you know, the Protestant work ethic, you save. And, you know, it's the Charles yeah. Dickens was a macabre, you know, if the man saves or if you spend too much. That's all to do with accountancy. It's got nothing to do with economics because economics is all about the, the public. And yeah. uh, this idea, remember we talked about the paradox of aggregation. Like what is good for one person is not good for everybody. Yeah. So if yeah, you yeah, save, yeah. it's good for you. But if everybody saves, it's bad for everybody because if everybody saves, nobody's buying. And if nobody's buying, there's no demand and there's no jobs and you get into a downward economic cycle. So that's yeah. what negative yeah. interest rates are now. It's, right, it's, okay, it's, okay. It's an unusual thing to get your head around but look at it on the basis that you're rewarded for spending and you're penalised for saving. And that's okay. what it is. Okay, that's good. Tell us this. What's this spat between, it seems like Northern Europe and, and Southern Europe almost? Well, it's a very big one. We, we, we touched on Max Weber there, right? You know Max yeah. Weber, the great German sociologist? Very interesting. 
sociological development. Weber went into Germantown. So after the Thirty Years' War, Germany was broken up into all these very small principalities, and each one was largely Protestant or largely Catholic. And then as, yeah. that, as that begins to wash out, unfortunately it hasn't washed out in Northern Ireland, but as that begins to wash out <laughs> of the thing, people live together, but they still live slightly differently. So even in mm. big towns like Cologne and Frankfurt, the Catholics and Protestants lived slightly differently to each other. And Weber was trying to understand, was there an economic lesson to be learned from religion? And he came out with something which has been proved to be totally fallacious, actually, and totally invented, but it's very interesting. The Protestants, because they saved more, had a work ethic. And that work ethic, they went out to work. So he basically went down, he went through all the various different guilds and, and different jobs or whatever. And he, he figured out that Protestants seemed to work slightly harder than Catholics. And he came out with this idea of the Protestant work ethic. And this has been, right. this has been latched onto by Dutch people and Brits and Northern Germans as in a way to say that they are more superior. But the interesting thing, it falls down when you look at the data because Bavaria is the richest part of German, Germany and it's full of Fenians, right? There ain't a broad <laughs> sight, okay? So, but it did pertain in the 19th, 18th and 19th century, okay? So right. that idea that Northern European is slightly more virtuous than Southern Europe has been something that's gone into the sort of the canons of accepted wisdom. And where this plays down is in debt markets, right? So right now there is a massive spat going on. Last week, nine prime ministers, Tishi, nine leaders of, Euro, of Eurozone countries mm-hmm. wrote to the Commission and the ECB urging the Commission to greenlight at the European Council a what they call a corona bond, which is a mutual euro bond, which means that right. rather than each individual country raising money to fight the crisis, that we in Europe would raise money together in one big euro bond, right? So that Germany makes sense. Would, yeah, so basically you, you do the following. Let's say Germany's 20% of the economy and Italy's 10%, France is 10%. Yeah. Blah, blah. So you'd all, you'd all have responsibility for that percentage of the bond, right? So you... You, right. raise, you raise 100 million, take the figure, you raise 100 million, the Germans get 20 million, the French get 20 million, blah, blah, blah. We get, let's say, six or seven million, right? right. And, we, and we all raise the bond using our own ratings and we're all responsible for it. This is what Ireland wants, France wants, Italy wants, Spain wants. Right. The Germans and the Dutch and the Finns have said no way. And this comes back the core problem at the heart of the euro, maybe, which is still the Germans and the Dutch don't regard the French and Spanish as Italians as as virtuous as them when it comes to paying back money. So they think that what this will do is this will contaminate the German bond market, contaminate the Dutch bond market with the free spending legacy of Italians and Spaniards, right? So it goes against right. the total sense of European solidarity. I think it's, I think it's fucking appalling yeah. what they're doing, right? And I think it reinforces this idea that every time there's a crisis in the euro, remember Yanis said last week, Italy suffers most, Spain suffers most. Yeah. Because yeah. everyone thinks so there's a flight of capital out of Italy and Spain into Germany because everybody thinks the Germans are more virtuous, right? Right. But... What the Germans are very happy with is an open market where they can sell their cars to Italians, but not an open market where Italians can borrow at the same rate as Germans. So there's a a dichotomy, there's an asymmetry at the heart of the system where Germany wants free movements of goods, but not free movement of capital. And the Italians and the two, so that's a big scrap. And I think this is the big scrap and it's coming up this week and next week. And do you think that... Like Brexit, as we know, over the last few years has has really shook Europe in many ways. Could this uh, event, the Billy Ray Cyrus, as some people are calling it, <laughs> exactly. could this event actually hasten the breakup of Europe? No, you see, what happens is, if you read the Brit papers, right, or if you read the Telegraph, I mean, nobody ever made money in Europe by reading the Daily Telegraph, right? Because it gets everything wrong. Right. So if yeah, you read yeah. the Daily it Telegraph, right. it gets everything wrong, right? Because it's all this, this bullshit that, oh my good God, if, if the Brits think that if Europeans could be just a little bit more English, everything would be fine. But well, of course, that's the paper that Boris wrote for. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Who's now got the virus himself. But I mean, yeah. so anti, 
European commentators, particularly British ones, always latch on these notions as, oh my good God, this is the beginning of the end, and if they could only just follow Britain, everything would be fine. What I think you'll find is the politics of this will dominate the finance. And the European Council will convince Merkel, who's always been much more pragmatic, mm. that she has to, what they call, mutualize German debt. So she has to make Germany be part of a coalition of debtors rather than the country that stands apart. Ironically, Holland is the country that is most against mutualization. The Dutch are, even though... Why? Well, what's their problem? Because the Dutch really feel that they're better at money than everybody else. I mean, the Dutch, as an Israeli friend of mine said, you love this, right? Jewish made of money. He says, the Dutch, he said, they're the only guys who can buy from the Jews, sell to the Scots, and still they make some money, which I thought was great. <laughs> so, but they were the guys also, as, as you've explained before, that while they didn't have any resources... They were just brilliant at trading. They're great at trading. If you ever do a deal with Dutch people, mm. and I remember doing that years ago, they're lovely, they're very sweet, they're great at football, very placid, <laughs> love a spliff, all that stuff. They will screw you for everything in the contract. It's just in their nature. <laughs> and it's amazing. They do it, but they're lovely people, but they just can't help themselves. So, you know, the funny thing with the Dutch is they're, they're, they're the nation that, that with no resources became the richest country in Europe in the 17th century, because they trade like bejesus. Right. And at the, at the core of their mercantile view is the soundness of money, the essential idea that money is pure. They're like the Germans. And they regard... So basically, I'll tell you, to, if you, if you think of it, Dutch people regard money as a public good, like, for example, clean air. So the, yeah. the integrity of money needs to be identified by treaties, and you cannot contaminate it, okay? The Italians don't look at money as a public good. They look at money as a tool, a tool to be used to shift the economy in times of crisis. So these are two totally different philosophical yeah. views, right? Yeah. This is the philosophical battleground that's going on at the moment. That's incredibly fundamental. It is fundamental. You know, in, uh, for the basis of Europe. Yeah, it And is. two things I was going to say, you have Merkel, the pragmatist, is coming to the end of her term now anyway. But also, secondly, like, taking a step back again, where are we going with this? Like, what are the economic consequences of, well, of all of this? I, I think the, to answer the first thing is, I think Merkel may well not resign and not oh, retire. Really? Yeah, there's very few other politicians in Europe that have her stature. In fact, there's nobody. Yeah. And also have her ability to bring the German people with her on very difficult things. And also, don't forget, the Germans are incredibly pro-European. So it's almost like monetary jihadis are against all this stuff. But the <laughs> average German realises we're in a problem together. And the reason this is very different from the Greek crisis or the Irish crisis, the Italian crisis in 2008, 2009, is the Germans weren't in a crisis in 2008, 2009. They were clearly the dominant economy, clearly not affected by mm. the Eurozone crisis, the bond market crisis, the debt crisis. Now Germany's in the same position as everybody else. So I think that what we'll see is a shift towards a more pan-European view. This is what Macron wants. This is what Italy wants. This is what Spain wants. Merkel's holding the line a little bit from the German side, but I think she'll change. To right. answer your second bit of the question, the long-term implications for Europe are exactly as they are for everybody else. That unless we get the health pandemic under control and unless we put the economy to sleep, we will end up having a much weaker economy when we come out of this. So basically everybody's in the same boat, I think. Which means that it, all these arguments in the next week or two in terms of who's going to pay what are all going to be subsumed into the overall view that, hold on, there's a calamity coming towards us. We've got to fix it all together. Because we know what happened in Italy. We know what's happening in Spain. You know, thousands of people, hundreds of people in yeah. are dying a day. So we need to avoid that like the plague. I know it's a terrible turn of phrase, but there you go. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. All right, so that's Europe. But the other big concern, obviously, is America. It's now the new epicenter. The whole thing seems to be being handled really badly, with scraps breaking out between states and the federal government. Trump is just unbelievable. And at the same time, we still don't know the full extent of the numbers over there. And Trump and his buddies seem to be more concerned about the economy and getting people back to work. What's what's your take on the whole American... I, I was listening view? to Trump, uh, John, and he's, he's obsessed now by Easter. This is his obsession. Yeah, yeah, because it's, it's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful day. thing. Uh, the last thing I, I, I... The last time I checked, the virus doesn't believe in the resurrection. So the yeah. virus is not going to get up on Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, and say, ooh, I'd like some Easter eggs, right? <laughs> so basically what you have, Trump is imperiling the health of the United States, the health system of the United States, and the welfare of his own people. Yeah. For his own economic ends or political ends, he is absolutely terrified that the collapse in the American economy will lead to a collapse in his ratings and he will lose the election. So his entire disposition through all this has been, how does this play out for Donald? Will I get re-elected? Now, very interestingly, if you read people like Steve Bannon, they are talking about how Trump blew this, right? If you think about it, you have a right-wing nativist president who likes building walls and who talks about trade being a bad thing, globalization being a bad thing, and most of all, China being a bad thing. Then the Mm. Chinese deliver to him in January on a plate every single reason to reinforce his message. One, the Chinese, as he said, come up with this disease, right? Yeah. This justifies or validates his idea to stop globalization. He can actually then say, this is another reason for making American stuff in America because global supply chains contaminate us. This is another reason for him saying borders are good, because again, didn't I tell you those people outside are dirty, all that sort of... So for a president like Trump, this thing could have been political gold, and he Mm. could have faced down Wall Street and basically said, the elite wants you to stay open, but I'm going to protect you, I'm going to close down the economy here, I'm going to close down this, that, and the other, I'm going to be a president. What does he do? He gets the hard for Wall Street and says, we got to stay open to keep money going, right? Rather than saying, I'm going to use the military and I'm going to use the power of America and America yeah. first, think about what he could have done, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. In a, in a malignant, malicious way for his own ends, right? I'm not talking about the goods or bads or rights or wrongs. I'm talking about the politics of this. Instead, he decides that keeping big business in America open is what he has to do. He decides to move against his own people. Yeah. And then he flip-flops all over the place. So what really fascinates me about Trump, first of all, we know the virus doesn't believe in the resurrection. So this idea of Easter Sunday is a ludicrous idea. Mm. But the second thing is, 
in a malicious way, if he was in any way clever or malignant, he could have really used this to advance everything he's been saying for the last four years. And yet, because he surrounds himself with billionaires, and these billionaires are worried about money and they're greedy fuckers, he has ended up neither being on the side of the average American dude who's getting sick, nor on the side of big business who are getting closed down anyway. And he's fallen in the middle. And this is why he's terrified. Absolutely. And this is why he's talking about making America open for business when every American is saying, hold on a second, as you said, we're the epicenter. We don't have the health system. This is spreading viciously throughout our population and people are dying. Do you know, also, I think that this has really shown America, corporate America and Republican America up for what it is. It's all about money first. Not America first, money first. And incredibly, there's been quite a few CEOs on air and politicians on air saying that it's the duty of the over 70s, actually one guy said over 50s, to go back to work and essentially sacrifice themselves for the future of American children and the economy. It's crazy. Like seriously, have, have a listen to a few of these clips. This is unbelievable. The president is right. The cure can't be worse than the disease. And we're going to have to make some difficult trade-offs. Within a very few weeks, let those with a lower risk to the disease return to work. My message is that um, uh, let's get back to work. Let's get back to living. Let's be smart about it. Uh, and those of us who are 70 plus, we'll, we'll take care of ourselves, but don't sacrifice the country. I'm in the danger zone. I would rather have my children stay home and all of us who are over 50 go in and keep this economy going and working. Even if we all get sick, I'd rather die than kill the country. John, geez, John, that is extraordinary. I mean, that is, that is kind of euthanasia as an economic policy. Exactly. Which is, I mean, I, I just, I feel for the Americans. We know loads of Americans, have loads of American mates. You know, to be run at this stage by a malignant narcissist who cannot think of anything except himself. It must be, it must feel appalling if you're sitting in New York or, or Boston or, or wherever the hell you are, Milwaukee, wherever. You know, it doesn't really matter who you voted for. Just to have that moron at the top now is, I mean, it's dreadful. And I, and yeah. I feel for them. Like, this is unique. That We've never really been here before. But what do you reckon? I mean, I suppose the closest thing was the Spanish flu and the... 1918 to 1920, but what do you reckon the, the long-term impacts or implications of this could be economically? Well, John, it's interesting you mentioned the Spanish flu. I want to go back further than that because up until the First World War, mm. the vast, 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 first and second world war, the vast, vast, yeah. vast, vast, vast majority of humans were killed by germs, not by wars. This is the interesting right. thing, is that germs have been with us ever since the hunter-gatherer decided to domesticate animals. Because all these microbes come from animals, and they all come from our domesticating of pigs, of of, of cattle, of dogs, whatever, okay? And of course, of of, laterally of birds and avian Mm. flus and all that sort of thing. So if you look at pandemics and germs in its overall context in terms of its impact on human history and human economics, it becomes really, really interesting. The single most appalling episode of destruction by germs and microbes and viruses was the total obliteration of the Native American population between the time that Columbus came and about 1620. Because what happened was... Think about it. You know, His, Hispaniola, which is where uh, now modern Haiti and right. Dominican Republic, this is where Columbus first came. Mm. The Indian population, the native population of that huge archipelago, because a big island and then a few islands around it, went from 8 million in 1492 to zero, zero in 1530. Because we brought with us, so basically we... The very, very first episode of smallpox, which is one of the more virulent. So you get smallpox, measles, flu, all these things that we yeah. know, they all come from animals. So they all come from our domesticating animals. The very first known example of that 
was a mummy with smallpox marks in 1600 BC in Egypt. Right. So we start, so basically we domesticate animals, viruses start to jump from animals to us, right? Over time, the Eurasians build up a, not so much a tolerance to, but some immunity to, obviously, because you know what happens is our immune system fights back. But yeah. so basically people in Europe and Eurasia in general were all linked together by the Silk Roads, right? By trade. That's where the Black yeah. Death comes from, all these things. So over time, we build up an immunity to flu, to smallpox, to all these things. And we figured out ways of inoculating. So the Chinese had figured out ways of inoculating yeah. smallpox, etc. Right? There is actually the theory of virulution, where viruses have played a huge role in the evolution of, of the species through altering the DNA. Absolutely huge role. So that, let's come back to the economic things, right? The Spaniards and the Portuguese discover the new world. So they bring with them, not just themselves, but they bring with them mm. their germs, right? When the Cortes first went to fight the Aztecs, right? They, the Spaniards get beaten back. Then Cortes comes back again against the Aztecs, but he brings with him, unbeknownst to him, an infected smallpox carrier slave within 40 years 40 years Aztec population mm. goes from 20 million to 1 million and also oh, also Jesus. think about the psychology of this because they've no immunity so they all die yeah. right but also yeah. the psychology the Spaniards had immunity okay think about this so you have a disease that's killing Indians not Spaniards reinforcing in the Indians heads that the Spaniards are magic and are a superior race. Yeah. Then you have Pizarro goes down to the Incas in Peru. Exactly the same happens. Brings smallpox, influenza, kills 90% of the people, right? Then you go up to North America and you look at where the Native Americans all lived, which is in the Mississippi Delta and the Mississippi yeah. Valley, which is like the most fertile part of America, right? And again, what you see is happening is even before the Europeans arrive... European germs arrive quicker. So the Indians on the coast get infected. They're trading with the Indians further up the Mississippi. Yeah. Those Indians get affected. So the idea that America was devoid of Indians, right? Because again, the Americans think, oh, there's only about a million when we arrived here. The yeah, majority of Indians were killed before they ever met a European by European germs, right? Which is an extraordinary story. If you want to get details of this, Jared Diamond's book, Guns, Germs and Steel, an amazing read. If you're, yeah. in, if you're in the lock-in, which we're all in, it's a really good book to read over the course. But now you think... Actually, you did a great interview with Jared Diamond last year at the Mansion House, which, by the way, is on patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams. Just saying. Yeah, because that, that was a very, very good interview. And Jared Diamond's... He's, John, I think he's one of the best thinkers living at the moment. But yeah, let's go I, back. it was fascinating. He was great. Go back and think about the, 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 the virus itself. I mean, this is an intelligent life form. You know, like we always see the virus... It's not our, intelligent. Well, it is intelligent. It is an intelligent life form because, you know, for, think about this, right? The virus wants to live and reproduce and multiply like we do. And yeah. so if you think of our... That's driven by its DNA as opposed to... Yeah, but to... I'm just saying what it has, it has an ability to survive, right? Yeah. And very interestingly, it has an ability to survive despite the fact that its objective is to kill its host, which is very interesting. And then you think that a virus that kills its host, doesn't it just die? It's a kind of a weird evolutionary thing to have. But then mm. you think, okay, it figures out a way of moving from host to host. So when we think about our symptoms like sneezing, sneezing is the way in which the virus enlists us to reproduce it. Yeah. So yeah, it actually, yeah. if you think about it, these are clever things, right? You know, that's why I look at it. So go back to the Indians, go back to, to Central America, go back to Latin America. You've got this huge population destroyed by European germs. The Spanish then think, okay, we have this amazing economic potential. We have gold mines, we have silver mines. But we have no slaves because we had enslaved the Indians, but now they're all dead from our germs. Mm. And amazingly, 
the long-term implication of the smallpox pandemic which destroyed the Indians was black African slavery. Because the Spaniards and Portuguese, and then later on the British, who became the greatest slave traders, had to replace the Caribbean and Native American population with a workforce that they didn't have. Hang on, are are you saying that there wouldn't have been slaves taken from West Africa to America if the Spanish didn't kill everyone over there with smallpox? Absolutely. There is no need. Think about the economics. The Spaniards and the Brits, the biggest epicentre for slave trading in the world is the Caribbean. Of the 16 million black Africans who were taken over the years to the Americas, all but 600,000 went to non-North America. So to the Caribbean and to Brazil and to Colombia. Right. The reason they were brought to Latin America was because the Spanish and the traders, the slave traders and the Brits in the south of the United States needed to replace the workforce that had left because they had died by germs. So it's exactly what I'm saying is that slavery, that we know about slavery, for example, is a function of the smallpox pandemic because the smallpox pandemic killed the workforce. Therefore, they needed workers. I mean, I was—I thought about this a lot. I remember I told you I was in Barbados. Yeah. Barbados is very interesting. I was looking for the people called the Red Legs. Did I ever tell you about them? No. The Red Legs are white Irish indentured slaves who were taken from Ireland in the 1640s after the Cromwellian War. The reason they're called Red Legs in Barbados was because their legs went red in the sun. Okay. <laughs> So they used to wear, no, it's true. So Mark, you would have been the king I of the red legs. The king of, so the, the, the red legs, now I'll tell you who's a red leg. Rihanna is a red leg. Rihanna. Rihanna, so I'll tell you all this. Right, right go on. So basically, they used, to put, they used to put sheets on their head to try and away, get away from the sun. So the people look like yeah. us, right? But of course, the sheets and everything, the construction <laughs> on their heads, the hats, couldn't protect their legs. So their legs went red. The mal cal, the red legs, right? So the red legs are a tribe. <laughs> I swear to God, John, this is true, right? They're a tribe in the Atlantic-facing part of Barbados. Barbados is amazing. It's really split, right? So on the Caribbean side, which is protected from the Atlantic, you have all that Dermot Desmond and Dennis O'Brien people and all those swanky pants places, right? Of course, yeah. On the other side of the island is amazing. It's so much cooler, right? It's facing the Atlantic. Think about Barbados as the first piece of rock that the Atlantic hits from West Africa. Yeah. So it's just sea from West Africa, right? So it's mad. The sea is huge. It's coming in, right? Nothing can really grow there because the, the sea is so violent. The winds are huge, right? And that's where all the poor people live, right? And I went to a parish of St. Right. John in Barbados to look for the red legs. The red legs are the last of the Irish indentured slaves. Though they weren't slaves. They were indentured servants, right? So basically they were taken right. after the Cromwellian War from Ireland, to work yeah. the plantations in Barbados. But because the English whites didn't regard them as properly white and the blacks didn't regard them as black because they weren't black, they ended up being a tribe on their own. And they lived as poor right. whites in Barbados for many years and all over the Caribbean. So if you're a mixed race in the Caribbean, right, if you're half a little bit white, right, all the black people, because I, yeah. I was doing work for the National Bank or for the... the the Development Bank of Caribbean, yeah, yeah. they all describe people as being red. And if you're red, you're slightly mixed. You're not fully black, right? It's really interesting. Right. That's Which brilliant. is why, uh, for example, Malcolm X, Malcolm X's nickname was Red because his mother, his grandmother, was a black slave who was raped by a slave owner. And his nickname was Red. Wow. Okay, so really... It was Red. Jesus, never knew that. Anyway, so in Barbados, right... I was trying to find these people. Yeah. I went to this, Google yeah. it. I went to this, this little parish called St. John. Amazing place, right? And there you see the last of this population. And there's maybe a few thousand of them left. And they are white, not completely white, but they're definitely more white. And they are red legs. And now Rihanna, Rihanna's dad was a red leg. And she used to get, and she's right. quoted, do you Google this? Rihanna's quoted as being, she was slagged in school for being a red leg 
because you're not really black and you're not white. You're some. You're slightly in the middle. And how do they refer to themselves? They refer, oh. as, as red legs. Red legs. Oh, they do. Okay, yeah, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. How many yeah. are we talking about? How We're many talking people? a few thousands now. But there, there right, would have okay. been there, uh, apparently about forty thousand Irish people were sent to Barbados in the 1640s. But to come back to the pandemic, yeah. why were there Irish people in Barbados? Our narrative is because Cromwell was was you know the most awful thing in the world. That may or may not be true, right? I think it probably is true. Yeah. But more as an economist and as a historian, the bit that I like, right, economic history, it's much more plausible that these people went to Barbados to work the sugar cane factories. The reason they worked the sugar cane factories is that by 1640, the native Indians who would have been very populous. Remember I was saying there was 8 million of them in that neck of the woods before yeah. Columbus arrived, were all gone. So Barbados, which was an English colony, imported slaves to work the plantations that had been worked by the native Indians. And the native Indians were all killed by smallpox. Wow. And the same goes for Brazil. The same goes for all the area. So slavery has its roots, not just in the appalling behavior of whites, it has its roots in the germs that the Spanish brought that kills 90% of the native population. They were replaced by black African slaves. Rihanna's story is part of that. Almost everybody, Bob Marley's story, everyone's party is part of that. That is how and that is why you have a massive, massive West Indian African population in the West Indies. It's all that comes back to the germs, the pandemic. And the interesting thing is, while smallpox killed the vast majority of the Caribbean Incas and Aztecs, it was actually a flu like COVID-19 that killed the North American Indians in the Mississippi Delta. And that's what I find both chilling and fascinating in the economics, the long-term economic consequences of what's going on now. How are you doing there? It is David. I hope you're not going totally mental with this bloody lockdown, lock-in thing. Let's hope it passes soon, but who knows? So why not together use this opportunity to learn economics? I know you're interested in economics. You guys are tuning in. You're clearly, clearly clued in. Why don't we actually put a structure on this and do a course? Now, what I'm offering you now is my Trinity MBA course, which I devised for my students. It is... A global macro course dealing with the great economic thinkers, the great economic ideas, booms and busts and finance. We're going to be dealing with behavioral economics. We're going to be dealing with popular geopolitics, Brexit, Trump, all that stuff, the fallout from the pandemic, basic things you need to know in microeconomics, which feed into macroeconomics, and then tying it all together, economic history. The first episode, the introduction, is free for everyone. And then if you like that, you can go a wee bit deeper by joining me on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams and become an advanced Patreon member. And then we're going to do the whole course over the next few weeks. You're going to come out the far side of this bleeding pandemic, an economic genius. And we'll do that together. Okie dokie. Talk to you later.